Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's The Wonky Show. Immigration figures are out. We'll try and make sense of those. Jeremy Hunt has been giving and taking away. And Perez is out. But who will notice? It's all coming up. Well, I think things are already quite tough for students. And um, there was nothing in the budget beyond increasing um, the living wage that I could see that was truly gone to, to help students. Um, Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. Uh, we're live this week at Advanced HE's Governance Conference, where about 120 big names are discussing the future of the sector. Uh, I'm Wonky's Associate Editor Jim Dickinson, and I'm here to help us uh, row, but not steer, no, steer, but not row, isn't it, with governance, there we go, uh, across the uh, choppy waters of higher education policy this week, as usual, three fabulous guests. Roberta Blackman-Woods is Board Chair at Northumbria University. Roberta, your highlight of the Event, please. Of the event or the highlight of this event was definitely Julia Gillard's speech this morning. I really loved what she said about science and getting science out to the real world and having real impact. And I also loved what she said about having research be really transparent. And actually, the example she gave was observing it through a glass wall, quite literally. So that would kind of transform if I were to take um, research in the UK and around the world. Excellent stuff. Uh, Andy Westwood is Professor of Government Policy at the University of Manchester. Andy, your highlight of the event. Hi, Jim. My, my highlight was also Julia Gillard related. I was on a Zoom call and I had to say to the other people on the call, I've just been interrupted by the former Prime Minister of Australia, <laughs> uh, which I don't say very often, but um, I, might, I might make sure I do it more. <laughs> Fantastic. And Dan Tinkler is Governance Development Manager at Advanced HE. Dan, your highlight of the event. Rather unsurprisingly, Jim, is also Julia Gillard related. But um, from when I said sort of 15 months ago in a meeting, we should try and book Julia Gillard for the governance conference and send in an initial email to seeing it happen and then shamelessly asking for a photograph so I can show off to as many people as I can. Well, fantastic stuff. Now, we start this week with immigration. There are new immigration figures out. The government, or at least the ONS, has found some extra uh, net migration numbers down the back of the immigration sofa. Andy, what else is happening here? Well, there's there's two, two ways to sort of think about this i mean the first first thing to say is the figures that are out uh, this morning are are basically a, a, a provisional estimate of how much uh immigration emigration and the kind of difference between the two uh for the year ending kind of june 2023 so the start of the summer uh and uh and that kind of broader the the, the kind of consequences of the, the of those particular numbers and how it affects the debate about about student migration is kind of obviously what we're interested in here but just to whiz through 
really the headline numbers. Basically, kind of uh, uh, immigration numbers are are, are still high. 1.2 million uh, coming into the country, um, just over half a million leaving, which gives you a net migration figure of 672,000, which is the kind of political figure that the government concentrates on. Now, that's slightly higher than the kind of estimates from June 2022. Um, it's gone up by about 70-odd thousand, but it's slightly lower than the estimates at the end of last year. So December 2022, where it was 745k. Now, why is that Why is that important? Well, firstly, the biggest chunk of those numbers are students. Uh, uh, around about half a million of those are students. And um, we're beginning to see the the numbers that are leaving as well as the numbers that are coming. But in the light of uh, of, of this government's interest in, in students as part of that number, we've seen um, rather uh, rather kind of um, scary detail in Suella Braverman's uh, resignation letter, basically saying that she had this agreement to crack down further on international students that Rishi Sunak didn't deliver on. Um, so you know, so so how how in a sense the the, the Braverman Tory right react to these net migration figures um, will have a big impact on on kind of the, wh- wh- whether people think that's a big number, a low number, whether it should be a lot lower, and what happens to kind of how they manage student numbers as part of it. So it's, um, you know, I guess we wait with bated breath to hear to hear the judgment that they make on this, but knowing full well that um, it, it's it's very likely that that the, that the fall, the slight fall in numbers, isn't going to be enough for that particular bit of the Conservative Party, which means we'll probably get not just more rhetoric about student international students, but the likelihood of um, you know new measures on top of the ones that we saw earlier this year being talked about, and that that I think is going to be where the debate goes in the next kind of week or two. Now, Roberta, I guess the good news is, so there's a quote out from Cleverly this morning, um, which is a, a notable change in the mood music. So let me read this for you. Um, the biggest drivers of immigration to the UK, as Andy says, actually, he didn't say as Andy says, oh, that's me. Um, <laughs> uh, our students and healthcare workers, they are testament to both our world-leading university sector and our ability to use our immigration system to prioritise the skills we need. And I guess, I mean, in comparison to his previous assessor that is a very different sort of message i guess the real question here is whether he can hold that kind of political line knowing that actually in the quarter numbers are actually down for the sector against this kind of you know this onslaught from the tory right as andy said yeah well it's i mean it's really good to have this positive endorsement of the university sector and if he can change the culture of the home office to one that is much more positive about international students and what they bring to the country that would be great. I mean, this is a space that universities watch very, very closely and because our funding model is predicated in a number of universities and growing the number of international students. And what we have experienced this academic year is that that growth has not been as much as a lot of universities were anticipating. And therefore, there's a risk of, you know, some universities getting into financial difficulties. So a change in mood music that would make it easier. Um, well, mood music coupled with some changes in visas and just the whole sort of um, how we welcome students to this country, how we support them while they're here, I think would be really helpful for universities going forward. Well, fingers crossed, I guess. Now, Dan, um, you know, I mean, one of the things about immigration figures is, depending on which bit of the debate you're in, which side of the debate you're on, you can sort of pick, you can pick your favourite number. But I guess for universities that are doing financial 
projections that, uh, particularly in England, that will have returned their financial projections to OFS. And we got some discussed that last week on the podcast. Um, it's this last quarter that really matters. And, and whilst um, you know numbers are up year on year for the full year, numbers are actually quite significantly down. Um, I mean, just to run you through some of the detail I looked at on the train, India visa applications this quarter are down nine percent. Nigeria visa applications in the quarter are down twenty four percent. Now, once that translates through to acceptances and then actual numbers in the universities, I guess some universities will be looking at this last quarter thinking, "Blimey, we're in trouble." I think Jim, point to pick up on that is that we've seen a change in where international students are coming from. Ten years ago, we would have been talking about a large amount of Chinese students and recruitment from China. Now we're talking about recruitment from Nigeria and India. I think if I was in that position as a university and I was putting my financial projection forward, if I was a governor and wanted to seek assurance, I'd be saying, well, are we just focusing on one or two countries? What happens if relations break down? What happens if you know the dependence and the knock-ons we've seen with visas there come into force? And we have seen a growth to 2023 with 24% of all study-related visas had a had dependents of students listed compared to 5% in September 2019. We know that's going to take a knock-on. So where are our students going to come from in the future? We can all sit and say, well, maybe we'd like a change in the UK funding model. Maybe we would like to see some fee rises for inflation. Maybe we would like to change to on who knows a graduate tax model, but that's unlikely to happen. So we've got to find more than a reliance on one to two countries. However, in a competing international market, there is a great amount of competition for international students. And the two countries countries you mentioned, I think there's also a greater risk of dropout. Um, I was at a conference a few months ago, Council of Validating Universities, and somebody turned provided, I think they said it was around sort of one to two percent from what memory of Chinese students dropped out in the course of their degree tops, whereas it was around 20% for certain students from Nigeria with dependents. That to me creates a huge financial risk for a university. Are you guaranteed to keep a student for two to three years? Or are you having to model that you may only have them for six months? And then the risk of non-completion with the whole office. So I think there's a lot to unpick, but about really being selective where you're recruiting and not just relying on one to two countries and putting my governance hat on is if I was going in as a board member, I would be asking questions for assurance of what does this mean for our future plan for international student recruitment, let alone what we need to do in terms of actually embedding international students into culture and all the things about supporting success. So, so I guess, Andy, you know, the risks feel bigger here, don't they? And they feel more dramatic. Um, you know, there's there's probably an argument that says the sector is able to get through the back of COVID through some reduced on-campus costs and, and furlough, and then has been able to get through the past couple of years through this huge increase in international PGT. If the party's over and some of the reductions that we've seen in the last quarter continue, you know, if the chart starts to tick down now, this is this is this is bad news, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's bad news. Oh, it's bad news for um, universities, particularly those who are forecasting growth, which is most of them. <laughs> um, and it's bad news for governments, actually. And and I think it. I think this is where, it, and and it's definitely not the only place where government is is slightly schizophrenic about these things. So you know, in in both Department for Education and the Department for uh, Science, uh, Innovation and Technology, the, you know, the assumption is that is that this subsidy is a good thing, and that you know, as you said, even even James Cleverly is now saying that this is a positive. So you've got kind of one bit of government, or or several bits of government 
saying kind of you know let's let's um, let's continue this. It's a it's a big feature of the system. It's a kind of positive indicator of of kind of how well the country's doing. It's an attractive kind of place to come. But but the market's declining. But in another bit of government, kind of you know the the uh, and and we'll talk about this I think throughout this podcast. Um, the that drop will will be described as a policy success. Yeah. Yeah. That um, that cracking down on dependence, particularly in some of the countries that Dan's just mentioned, um, um, it, it has been a kind of a deliberate feature to satisfy yeah. parts of it. And, and presumably, even cleverly himself will be on the one hand get, saying the things he said earlier, but on the other hand, be being briefed by his officials. Don't worry, mate. The, the numbers are on the Dow. Well, yeah, they will say they've turned the corner and kind of immigration policy is is, is successful. While on the other hand, other bits of uh, government will think, oh dear, that means there's less subsidy for science, yeah. less subsidy for kind of domestic students, and that's going to cause kind of a whole bunch of universities up and down the country lots of kind of financial pain. Yeah. Uh, beyond the financial pain we're inflicting on them already. So, um, so, so you know, it's a case of look, you've got to look at this in the round, but we we we've essentially got a government that can't. Yeah. Roberto, I guess on the, on the kind of bigger politics of this, I mean, um, you know, Farage is in the jungle and he will emerge from uh, the jungle. Um, potentially he then, you know, in one scenario, he uh, has a word with Richard Tice, uh, goes on to lead reform again, uh, takes five or six points off the Tories. Anything could happen in the next few months, couldn't it? Yeah, well, I, I think the government could help themselves and they could help the rest of us by explaining the net migration figures a bit better <laughs> and actually taking students out of the net migration figures or at least explaining how they contribute to it because um, you know there is I think a lack of understanding about how students contribute um, to those figures but also the fact that students stay here they get really good jobs we know about a third of them stay here um, you know they are highly skilled they contribute and um, we would hope at some point in the future to growth in our economy they all we also get a lot of soft power throughout the world from educating um, overseas leaders in this country. So there's a huge amount to celebrate in terms of our international students and it should be supported. Um, but it also needs to be understood. Most of yeah. them come, they stay here, they study, they, you know, they contribute locally and then they go back. And um, it just might take a little bit of heat <laughs> out of the immigration debate if we could set the student issue aside. Super interesting this though, Dan, because so one of the things ONS has published today is further work on its three different methods for working out net migration when it comes to students, right? So one of them takes old assumptions, one of them takes a cohort study, that takes ages to work out what's happening because you track the cohort all the way through. Another sort of samples what happened um, each year when students' uh, initial visa period ran out. And one of the fascinating things about it is, depending on which method they use, you end up with a different net migration estimate in terms of the kind of numbers coming in. This is, yeah. You know, I mean, that whole question of you know net migration and the extent to which students are contributing to it. Um, you know, perhaps going on to take up skilled work. This is really tricky stuff, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, what was ringing through my head was going. It's like anybody who's ever tried to work out how many students are actually at a university at any one point in time. 
you can never get a straight answer. Yeah. Well, right now, we think. Um, but, you know, Roberta mentioned about contribution to the economy, and I picked up some UUK research from the start of the summer, and they found that international students contribute £41 billion to the UK economy. Most of that's in rent, though, Dan. So, you know, go straight into, you know, global wealth funds and people's pensions. So. <laughs> and every non-EU, you know, every 11 non-EU students generate a million pounds of worth net economic impact for the UK. Again, it's all rent, so, you know. Any- <laughs> I can't imagine what 41 billion of anything looks like. My reference point's about 100,000 big football stadium. I can't imagine 41 billion. So I think we really do really need to understand what the actual economic impact is, if that is the driver for government. Or is the driver around putting out a statement on a lovely graphic about immigration statistics? What is the actual driver here? Well, I, I, you see, we, we do need good data and we do need good economic arguments, but this is not this is not a rational debate. Whilst it's really important for us to try and try and kind of sort of support that rational debate you know mo- most of the conversation the country is having and it's fueled by well, I mean at least he hasn't got Wi-Fi in the jungle and won't know what's going on and hopefully he'll stay there but uh, uh, not least because we can count him in the emigration figures <laughs> rather than the immigration figures but uh, if he comes back but um, but but you know we saw we saw with the whole um, all the coverage of Rwanda and that only relates to 200 people against 1.2 million that um, the, 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 the debate that we have and the kind of the debate that politicians are happy to support and and kind of instigate is 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 not one that is based on kind of rational economics or or, or evidence. So, you, you know, we also need to find ways to kind of have this debate about value and benefit in, in rather more kind of, dare I say, popular rather than populist <laughs> terms. And, and we're nowhere near cracking that. Roberto, I guess the area where there is fairly good evidence to suggest that there are real pressures you know that kind of farage well you know they take the use they're taking up all the doctor's appointments type stuff there is a real pressure on student accommodation and has been um you know i mean does this give a, does this give the sector a couple of years to, to to hope that the you know the builders catch up and, and and put some bed spaces in because things are really tough in some cities yeah and i think universities do have to plan for international students and um you know accommodation is important but i I also think that you need to have support systems in place and actually really good civic engagement. And I always think one of the ways that you get welcome for international students is when you remove them from the abstract. Yeah. from immigration stats to be real people in front of you who want to know something about your culture, who want to bring something of their culture. We get greater diversity. I think that's really important for universities. It's, it's important for creating new knowledge that we have different voices and different groups of people learning. So it's all about planning for that and making sure that you deliver in a way that doesn't harm um, people already living in the area, but actually adds something to their life and I think you know a lot of universities do that quite successfully I think we could all learn from really good practice in this area well fascinating stuff more on the site as ever uh now let's see who's been blogging for us this week 
Hi, I'm Vicki Northern. I'm Beth Sennett. In our blog piece, Are Students' Writing Skills Still Important? Beth and I questioned the idea that it's not possible to analyze complex theories and arguments without being able to write well. We explore the history of reading and writing, discussing how it overshadowed all history, a transmission of ideas and knowledge that continues today, but is often delegitimized by the hierarchical structures of academia. We also look at spelling, grammar, punctuation, and how assistive technology and AI can remove some of those barriers that have been created by writing conventions. Finally, we invite discussion on ways of approaching writing and communicating that empowers students instead of disabling them, particularly those marginalised by labels like dyslexia. We hope that this piece inspires reflection, discussion, and even action to challenge the status quo in higher education learning. Now, Dan, uh, this week... Uh, Jeremy Hunt has delivered his autumn statement. Uh, I noticed the front page of one newspaper this morning says that he has given, and the front page of another newspaper says that he has taken away. What's going on? I have things down perspective, isn't it, Jim? Um, so really, we couldn't miss it. The autumn statement was delivered on Wednesday. Um, something that perhaps we start with maybe once we're hoping for, but was missing, was no review of HE funding systems. That is not in there. But what is in there is the publication um, and the response to the nurse review. So that is looking at the work that's already been undertaken in the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology, plans around areas connected to research. Two key themes that are coming through is really considering how much research costs and a reliance on student fees to subsidise it, and that quite links back to international fees that we've just spoken about, and a prom- wish to promote more research being done outside of universities. The second area is the increase in national living wage, up to £11.4 an hour. That will have an impact on the Welsh student finance system, so students should get an increase, um, which will be very much welcomed in the cost of living. And the apprentice minimum wage is also increased from £5.28 to £6.40 an hour. And hopefully we'll see students who are working in various part-time or, as we know, full-time jobs while studying will get an increase in wage as well. And ideal world will not have to work as many hours to enable them to study and hopefully actually make it to their lectures. And finally, the Treasury's um, independent review of university spin-out companies has been published in the government response yesterday. But one of the big areas of travel is around universities taking a smaller share of equity for spin-outs by academics and students, and a lot of focus on the process to become less bureaucratic, time con- less time-consuming, and crucially, the government have accepted all of those recommendations. So there's sort of three key areas to take for HE, um, and again, perspective, not as much as it could be, or maybe happy with less. Who knows? Yes, I mean a lot of a lot, a lot of the statement and a lot of the kind of commentary has obviously been about inflation, Roberta. Right? I mean, you know, inflation is obviously very high. Um, and for pensioners, uh, inflation will be eight point five percent thanks to the triple lock. And uh, for uh, working age people, benefits will rise by six point seven percent. That version of inflation, but because <laughs> because of the way the OBR then projects inflation, it means that the maximum maintenance loan for students next year will just be two point five. Sense things are going to get really tough for students, aren't they? Um, yes, well, I think things are already quite tough for students, and um, there was nothing in the budget beyond increasing um, the living wage that I could see that was truly going to to help students. I mean, I think generally commentators have said this is pretty much a, a, a statement for politics rather than for economics. And yeah. um, having said that, I think that the government announcing at the same time 
mechanism statement, the review um, of the nurse recommendations and the spin-out review has delivered something that universities can be positive about. And I hope that they can build on that to give more opportunities for students. Um, I think if we take the the nurse review to, to begin with, it really is about diversifying funding for research coming to universities and building on partnerships. And I mean, we just had an announcement yesterday for Northumbria, £50 million for a Northeast um, Space Skills and Technology Centre. I mean, that is transformative, not only for research and space skills at Northumbria, but for the whole of the Northeast region because of how it might deliver more jobs in the future. So um, if we can actually see some follow through from government in terms of supporting some initiatives for the longer term, really helping universities to look at spin-outs, how we do get more long-term funding into spin-outs, how we transfer knowledge across the sector because we're not very good at doing that at the moment. And we need to have offices in place that will share, again, good practice. And we need to see, um, I mean, it's, it's very interesting that the government did mention something about regional disparities in terms of spin-outs. Now, you know, I like to think that in the Northeast, the universities do quite well for spin-outs, but, you know, we don't do as well as London. So it would be wonderful to actually get more partners helping us deliver spin-outs. And um, also, I, I like the way they talked about uh, getting more PhD students, having internships and training them in entrepreneurship. I mean, these are all important things to, to help with economic growth um, in the future. So yeah, nothing specifically on funding for students. And I, you know, I think we just have to keep the pressure on government to do that because clearly, you know, maintenance is a huge issue for students. And it would have been nice if the government had just, you know, acknowledged that life is pretty tough for a lot of students. But um, I guess on the more positive side, we might see, um, you know, more money going into job creation and and that would be a good thing. Yeah. Andy, in terms of the overall government spending, I guess one of the stings in the tail was, in theory, to create all of the headroom that, that he said he had. Um, there were some interesting passages in the OVR's accompanying documents that suggest that unprotected spending in unprotected departments is going to have to fall quite significantly. This is a this is a this is a sort of really extreme remix of the "There's no money left" letter for uh, for uh, for the new chapter. Isn't it? Yeah. It, so, so the the um, the kind of arithmetic behind behind this headroom where where the cuts in uh, national insurance and uh, business expensing have come from uh, essentially kind of boil down to two things. One is kind of more people are paying more tax, so the fiscal drag point. But the second, as you as you've pointed out, um, yes, lots of people have got have got some form of pay rise, but government departments haven't. <laughs> uh, and uh, the OBR calculate this as essentially being twenty billion quid's worth the real terms cuts. So if you're an unprotected department, that's a 4% cut in the next part. Uh, and um, guess what? Kind of, you know, lots of HE sits in that unprotected. <laughs> so um, we are likely, if this materialises, and, you know, it's the other side of a general election, it may be Labour's responsibility rather than kind of the Conservatives to deliver this. But uh, at the moment, this will have kind of very material impacts, uh, very big impacts on a, a whole series of departments, including, including DFA. So um, it's it's tricky, but you know, going back to the debate we had about immigration, the the, the wanting to present this as a uh, an autumn statement that does tax cutting is 
a bit like wanting to present the immigration figures as, as forward. You know, people who don't like immigration don't like tax either. And the general theme of the autumn statement was that these sorts of things are good. <laughs> you, you know, keep freezing government spending is a good thing. Um, cutting taxes is a good thing. And the kind of, again, there's that dissonant. You know, all those measures, the and the, the, the fantastic kind of investment in Northumbria that Roberta's just described, lots of other little measures dotted around the country. Some of them not so little. Four and a half billion on advanced manufacturing. You know, this <laughs> this isn't just a tax cutting autumn statement. You've got a very active government, 110 measures to boost growth. So so whilst it might they, they might want to present this as a, a traditional kind of Tory budget that reduces taxes, actually other bits of uh, the autumn statement are busy spending money on lots of things to try and get growth to happen. So that, you know, those cuts aren't as deep uh, uh, sometime in the next parliament. As things stand, um, this will bring kind of lots of pressure on not just on to higher education, further education, kind of, you know, transport, local government, all the things that kind of, you know, will will kind of make a big, big difference to to the way people kind of experience kind of their communities, their, their, uh, the way public service operate and the, and the budgets that department have kind of to spend. Dan, I've just come from our governing body meeting this morning at the university, which is thinking about its next five years, okay? You know, we're going to create our new strategy. How on earth do universities look to the long term in this extraordinary kind of volatile difficult kind of space that we're in thank you for the hard question jim um i don't think we really can and honestly i think you have to yes we have to plan for long term but you have to plan with flexibility we could be in a completely different political environment in a year's time three years time there may be another review of ha and there may be recommendations and they may be implemented we don't know so you can plan for what's in front of you and you can plan that that is going to be the case but you've got to be flexible enough to understand that something is could be different however i think there's something that julia gillard said this morning that really really resonated with me which was about universities stepping down from their ivory tower structures of old and governing bodies having a responsibility to make that happen and if i look at it in terms of the spin out review i think that is a great opportunity to go and engage with communities impact creation of jobs that is where i would be looking at strategy and direction for the future is that no matter what happens host general election and we're likely looking spring is you still have to prove a value to the taxpayer you still have to prove a value to the government and instead of universities going in and saying this is how we are valuable in our interpretation you should help us be like this what can we do to help what are the needs of the country because if you have a public funded body to an extent and obviously not every HEI and not everyone read on the office register is public funded but you are still being funded through student fees and not every student pays their fees back that's public funding in my view then you have to align with what the need of the country and the need of the government is so i would be looking at what is the country saying and how do we help and build a strategy in that direction rather than necessarily if this is what we want to do this will help yeah i mean roberta i think you know one of the things that i was talking about this morning was i i am not immune to this i think lots of people are like this where you know you're in the middle of a pandemic you just want everything to get back to normal then you're in the middle of a cost of living crisis you want everything to get back to normal you know if you if you're involved in running or governing a university you do on one level just want to go back to normal don't you but i don't get a sense we're going back to normal do you um no what but what i do think um what we do know is that whatever government we have going forward they are going to have expectations of universities delivering for their local communities and delivering economic development and regeneration and so i think all universities need to address that we as governing bodies we do need to 
spent more time looking at spinouts and how we support them and how we can develop partnerships to deliver them and how we can get academics better um, lined up with industry. So they're all things that I think governors can look out for. And in diversifying research income, I mean, I imagine most of us have an objective to do that. Um, and, you know, it's easier in some areas than others, but certainly I know in the future governors will be asking questions, much more questions about research funding and what the full cost is, how we're going to meet the full cost and, you know, what, where those new income streams are coming from. Some of them will, will come from um, maybe transnational education or something we do in the education side. A lot will come from research and, and how we get a return on that. How we as universities get a return on that research, but I see what does that deliver for our economy mm. and not just our economy, but how can we reach out globally and give more opportunities to our students for jobs in you know what will what will be I think we'll see emerging economies uh, going forward and we want to make sure our students are are lined up to be able to take advantage of that and take on the opportunities that that will deliver. And yeah, I guess the other chart that I'd, uh, caught my eye this morning was um, the sort of impact on living standards around the country. You know the the, the leveling up thing um, and the OBR saying it's going to be some time before you know they improve for lots and lots of people in lots and lots of parts of the country and to some extent the spin out thing is obviously really important but there's something else going on isn't there in lots of communities which is universities big shiny buildings student accommodation and then people from those places really really finding it tough so the OBR basically says it's the worst drop in living standards since the Napoleonic Wars so that's quite serious uh, and um, and and that is a that is a challenge and and as you say I think I think the temptation as as universities set their strategies is 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 to retreat and to sort of you know duck your head below the parapet and try and get through it but I think as you, you know as both Dan and Roberta have said actually it's the opposite that we need and and as you say the problem with doing that is that is that we've got a big job to do in our communities not just for our students but for kind of you know the places that we're in uh, and uh, uh, you know as Dan described Julia Gillard was very articulate in saying you've got to, you've got to be on the front foot and you've got to engage with that because that's what matters and as as Roberta as you've just said it it's it's so important that that universities kind of articulate their importance and their value to local communities and that is about living standards it is about economic growth it is about jobs and I think as governors um we have to encourage uh universities to be brave to embrace that agenda it isn't easy you, you, you know the level all the leveling up data will tell us that that kind of you know it's not happening <laughs> uh and uh, and the gaps between certain places and others are growing rather than shrinking so it's never been more important for universities to engage in that kind of economic growth economic development agenda and there are bits you know there, there is good news in the autumn statement there are these lots of little pots there are more investment zones kind of they're going to be around for 10 years there are more tax breaks there's more cash to spend in them there's more kind of one-off uh, um, grants for particular activities in particular centers so so you know this bit of government understands that R&D and universities can make that difference I think I think universities themselves are still a bit nervous about that but um, I think governors and and leaders of universities need to be brave and they need to engage in this and they need to kind of find the new models that will help drive it rather than think there isn't enough money 
around. Um, we're going to just have to have to just retrench and and get through this difficult period. And exactly, exactly. I think it, I think it's entirely understandable that they might want to do that, but it's also entirely the wrong thing to do. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Finally this week then, Advanced HE's Postgraduate Research Experience Survey is out, Roberta. What is it telling us? Well, first of all, can I say what a really useful survey this is because we don't talk enough about the experience of our um, postgraduate researchers. And I guess the good news for universities is that 80% or around 80% of um, postgraduate uh, researchers have, you know, they're reporting very high levels of satisfaction. Um, I think um, some of the nuances on perhaps things that we would um, have anticipated that researchers working mostly or completely online were less satisfied than those who worked um, in person. Uh, researchers from different ethnicities expressed differing levels of satisfaction. This seemed to be an issue around um, particularly black students not having access to the full range of opportunities, for example, teaching experience that their white counterparts do. Um, researchers with a disability continued to be less satisfied. I think we need to understand more about why that's the case. For those leaving, obviously, cost of living um, was a huge issue. And um, there also was a new question this year that was really about how students feel embedded in a local academic community, and that was some of the lowest scores. So there's obviously a few issues for universities to pick up there, you know, what they're doing about disabled students and how to support them. And there's also a set of of issues around belonging. Mm. How do you get your postgraduate students to feel part of that academic community and, and what are universities doing to enable them, you know, to have partnerships across the university, for example, and get together with other research students and really feel part of that wide community. I'm going to praise my colleagues who did this research um, so I can definitely go back to Advanced HQ without any fear now. Um, so fantastic, Johnson and his team. And what really stuck out 
for me was the belonging aspect and what we can draw as comparisons with the undergraduate research that we've done on belonging, particularly in things like the student academic experience survey and the work you've done yourself at Wonky and Belonging. And has anybody ever really properly looked at, and I mean sector-wide on belonging here, not just small cohort of postgraduate research students, on approaches around connection, inclusion, support and autonomy? What do we really understand? And do we often look at belonging through sort of the undergraduate lens of saying, well, there's an opportunity for you to go and join a society here. Well, if you're a remote postgraduate researcher, do you really want to go and join a sports club or society with 18 and 19 year olds? Probably not. That's a guess, but it's an educated guess. And the bit that kind of, you know, there's a little bit of sadness in there is seeing that um, black postgraduate researchers were saying that they feel like they belong less, that they had less opportunities to attend conferences with staff. And this to me looks towards the future pipeline of academics, researchers, professors, university leaders. We know it's not as diverse as we would like to see in the sector. And that if we're going to get that right, we've got to start in a grassroots level. So while it's fantastic research, that came to me as going, well, that is something we need to change. Now, Andy, um, obviously, I'm, I'm sure that universities that have taken part and are looking at their be- benchmark numbers will be looking at this in detail, reflecting, and then putting improvement plans in. But I guess, you know, one of the things I often think about is, if I think about the national bodies that are responsible for, in on some level or another, the student interest, either from a, a kind of sharp regulatory point of view or a sort of improvement point of view, uh, you, you know, I, I, this won't be the first time I've made this point on the podcast. P- PGRs fall between all sorts of stools, don't they? And, and I was reading the recommendations thinking, who are these for? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, universities, I think, need to take this really seriously. Um, uh, I, I mean, I'm sure they are. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, but why are they? Why do they need to take it seriously? Well, well, they should. They should should really see this as a as a good indicator snapshot of of precisely the discussions about how the next ref is planned to emerge. You know, what's research environment going to mean? And and it, it it should help them kind of really think about what they can do to sort of begin to improve conditions, whether it's belonging, whether it's culture, whether it's that kind of pipeline, all of which matter. Um, with regard to their performance, their institutional performance uh, in in the next ref. Now, you know, will they will they join up those dots? Um, I think some might, um, but but lots lots may not see this as as their opportunity, or they might not see this as the snapshot that helps them to think about these things. But then we also want you know we also want government departments to think about these things. We want you know when DCIT talks about uh, uh, the kind of you know the ambitions to be a science superpower, we want them to think about kind of exactly what the people who are going to have to drive it in the next 10 to 20 years, 20, 30 years, what they think about their, their experience now. So so it's a really, really important kind of sense check on lots of institutional and government ambitions. And I think gives a bit of a, a roadmap for both to to start to kind of address some of the issues that are coming out through through the survey. But it's um there's a worry. There's a worry that 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 universities kind of don't take this seriously. They, they kind of think there's always more people that can fill these. There'll always be somebody else who's prepared to do it. I think I think we can we can really underestimate how important these messages are. And I guess, Roberta, I mean, in terms of you know, if, if we avoid that silly debate about you know whether PGRs are students or staff, you know, the reality is that as well as thinking about this from a kind of student experience optic, um, you know, it's actually quite difficult to kind of divorce some of the findings in here from some of the things that we know are going on kind of industrially, the, the wider staff experience, and so on. You know, there's there's a there's there, it feels like there's a culture problem here. Yeah, and I think um, well, the first thing I'd say is I think boards will be really interested in this survey because. 
because we do look at student satisfaction right across the piece. We do start surveys on a regular basis to find out, um, you know, how our staff are feeling about working in the institution. So it really struck me that we would want to ask questions about our research culture. We are just we have just appointed a new dean of research culture. I know a lot of universities are doing that, and it is to try and capture what needs to be done to really support our researchers, and that includes you know our senior professors, but it also includes our very junior researchers and new researchers because we have got to nurture them going forward so they're, you know, the great researchers of the future. And that's certainly one of the things I thought I'd ask is what are we doing to make sure that those um, research students, particularly at the beginning of their career, are linked in to wider networks and are sort of linked in to support right across the university. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget you can get the latest show automatically when it's out. Just search for The Wonky Show wherever you get your podcasts. And to find out how we can keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the site and click subscriptions. So thanks very much to Roberta, Andy, Dan, Michael Salmon, who makes the show happen. We'll be back next week. Until then, stay wonky. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.